Blog Talk Radio. Saturday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Saturday. It is May 18th, 2019, and uh, I thank you so much for joining me. I apologize for not being here yesterday on Friday, my customary time. Uh, I was invited to um, go over to the studios for I-24 News. It's an international news organization based out of Tel Aviv, Israel, um, and they wanted me to discuss President Trump's proposed merit-based immigration system. And those of you who are familiar with me know that my goal, the reason that I do this program, I have no commercial sponsors. This isn't a profit-making operation. This is truly a nonprofit, but it's about providing the information to as many of our fellow Americans and our alleged political leaders as possible about the true significance of border security immigration law enforcement, and issues that relate to both of those very important topics. Uh, You know, uh, ever since the ashes from 9-11 landed on my home in New York, um, I became firmly convinced that the American people uh, needed to know the truth. Immigration is not the minor issue that for years it has been portrayed in the media by the politicians, um, by the pundits, and still being misportrayed because immigration is a cash cow for all too many people. It's about political power. It's about campaign contributions, about cheap, exploitable labor, an unlimited supply of foreign students and foreign tourists. And let's not forget our friendly lawyers. It's an un- it creates an unlimited supply of work and clients for immigration law firms. So when you consider it from that perspective, it becomes a very different issue. Additionally, foreign nationals working in the United States send their money home. It makes sense. It's something that I would certainly do if I worked in a foreign country. I'm sure you would also. Not their fault for us being uh, the fools that we are because of who runs the country. Uh, But in the movement of money is profit to be made by the banks and the remitters the Western Union companies and all the others who want to be able to become their silent partner by shipping money across international borders, they're kind of like a moving company. Um, If you go to um, a van line company, they used to have allied van lines. I don't even know if they exist anymore, but all these moving companies, um, they just want to know two things or three things. They don't care if the furniture is French provincial or Scandinavian or colonial or God knows what. All they care is how many pieces of furniture, how far do you want to move it? Is it a private house or is it an apartment house? Are there any stairs or is there an elevator? Maybe they want to know if it's a piano. I think pianos are are a headache for them also. But other than that, they don't care. The money wire services, the banks, the remitters, don't care how the money was earned. They don't care if it was earned legally or illegally. They don't care if it was earned by a doctor who came to the United States to save a baby's life or if the money was earned by a woman uh, in a brothel or a drug dealer who consummated a drug deal or an illegal alien uh, being exploited in a sweatshop somewhere. They don't care. Money is money, and if they get to move it, they get to make a fee for moving it. So everyone is feeding at this very deep and lucrative trough, and we the people and our country and our country's future are being literally compromised to satiate these very greedy uh, and immoral individuals and organizations. And so uh, anytime I'm given an opportunity to expand my audience, to reach the largest number of people possible, frankly, I jump at the opportunity because The mainstream media rarely, rarely covers immigration. And when they do, almost always, uh, they're not doing it honestly or accurately. Uh, Interestingly, in the 
few years after 9-11, I was averaging 15 to 20 television interviews on all the major networks, CNN, um, MSNBC, ABC, Fox News. They all had me come on. And around the time that Citizens United was decided by the Supreme Court, which basically said that unlimited amounts of money could be pumped into campaigns by corporate entities, private entities, the whole climate on the immigration issue changed. It changed in Congress and it changed in the mainstream media. Uh, it's absolutely remarkable. You could just see the, the, the sharp turn that America took once the Supreme Court rendered that decision. Devastating decision. And, and I know so many people say to me, well, this was just a way of balancing all the union money that gets poured into political campaigns. And they're probably right. So I have an easy solution. Neither union nor corporate money ought to be going into political campaigns. Um, you know, politicians are in a feeding frenzy over money. Think about this. If you have any involvement with politics at all, how many emails do you get on a daily basis from various campaigns begging you for money? Our opponents are raising money. We're going to lose the campaign. They're your enemy. You've got to help us fight the on and on. Imagine if law enforcement officers went out looking for money from the people they interacted with. It's called bribery. It's called corruption. If you don't think that campaign contributions, uh, this whole dirty business of money, has corrupted and polluted the political world, you're crazy. You're delusional. It absolutely has. Uh, I often jokingly say that we should have a new position of the government, the official auctioneer. Because we are auctioning off our country and with it our children and our grandchildren's futures. And so the American people need to fight back. And the easiest way for us to fight back most immediately is to be armed with the truth. Confront the politicians at the town hall meetings. Take your cell phones and videotape the responses. But understand that if you're going to ask the questions, you need to have the information Number one, to formulate meaningful questions that pin the politician down. And number two, so that you know when they're throwing a snowball at you. You know when they're lying to you. Uh, I mean, we can joke and say, well, you can tell a politician is lying if his lips are moving. But really, you need to be able to narrow it down. And there are some politicians who are honest, who try to be honest, and they get hammered by their own party, both parties. Both parties and immigration is the issue that really unites the Democrats and Republicans. And if you don't believe it, why then did the Republicans not give President Trump the money for the wall when they controlled both houses? So you can say what you want, and the Democrats are a train wreck. Don't get me wrong on this one. And full disclosure, I'm registered as a Democrat. I haven't voted for one in many years because they are no longer Democrats. They've become anarchists. Um, they've become seditionists. They are seeking to destroy the middle class. There's no doubt in my mind. But don't for a moment think that the Republicans are the friends of the middle class. Some members of Congress, some mayors, some governors may well be. But on the national level, this is about importing cheap labor. We're to get to that. But before we do that, um, I, I want to talk about with you what I discussed yesterday at I-24 News, the president's notion of a merit-based immigration system. And Nancy Pelosi, of course, went off the rails when she heard it and said, oh, it's condescending and everybody has merit. Uh, everyone doesn't have equal merit, Nancy Pelosi, and she knows it. This is all the rhetoric, all the accusations. If you dare suggest that you want to have immigration laws, then you're anti-immigrant and you're a hate monger and you're a bigot. So let's begin with the fundamental fact that the immigration laws make absolutely no distinction about race, religion, or ethnicity. If the laws did, I could not have enforced the laws for 30 seconds, let alone 30 years, which was the length of my career with the former INS. So first and foremost, the immigration laws are designed to keep out aliens who have dangerous communicable diseases or severely mentally ill, are criminals, spies, terrorists, fugitives from justice, human rights violators, aliens who have been previously deported, aliens who have committed fraud in trying to get a visa or an immigration benefit, 
And then we get to aliens who would likely become a public charge, and, and here we go to merits, or aliens who would displace Americans uh, if they were to work in the United States. Now, certainly, we admit aliens to work in the United States, and certainly when people are married to Americans, and, and that's part of family reunification, they can take any job that they want that they're qualified for, because the goal there is to unite families or reunite families. So why don't we take on this issue of family reunification first before we move on to the issue of labor and work and jobs and wages? For the longest time, the American immigration system was all about reuniting families. Now, in some ways, it makes sense. If uh, a, a father or a mother, one of the, the a member of a couple, and they have children, if one of them gets a job in the United States, you're not going to expect someone to take a job working in America and leave their wives or their husband and children back home, depending on who got the job, presuming that only one member of the family uh, now has that job in the United States. So it's reasonable that the uh, spouse joins the alien who succeeds in getting a job in the United States to get residency here. And it certainly makes sense to bring minor children to the United States. After all, we travel as a family. And the last thing that anybody who's rational and fair about it wants to do is to split up a family, a husband, a wife, children, that sort of thing. Okay? So if you're rational, if you're reasonable, if you're logical, we understand that families travel as a unit. Okay? In fact, when families are split up, uh, children suffer, and I really do believe, and this comes back to a different issue that we'll get to eventually, either today or at a future time. Time is always too fleeting on this program. But I, I believe part of the problem with gangs in Latin America and all the violence that you're seeing, besides the corrupt governments, uh, is the fact that all too frequently the young men leave their countries, let's say in Central America, head to the United States where they're exploited. And believe me, there's no, there's no compassion and exploitation. And when they leave behind their wives and their children who live in poverty, which is why they come here to support them, without the strong male influence, um, those kids very often come off the rails. And if you have lots of children, which traditionally is what happens in the third world, you have lots and lots of children, the mother is unable to rein them in and control them, they form surrogate families. They get involved with all kinds of situations. Poverty certainly fuels that need for money, uh, and they'll do anything to make a buck. I mean, literally anything to make a buck. All too frequently, it involves criminal, criminal activity, and that's how gangs arise. Okay? So I certainly believe that we have to strengthen families for the sake of everybody. So if, a, if someone gets a job in the United States, they're going to bring along their spouse and they're going to bring, bring along their children, and that's fine. And nobody should be messing with that, and Donald Trump isn't suggesting that. But in a merit-based system versus the family reunification theory, beyond the nuclear family, nobody else would get a green card. Nobody else would get to be a lawful immigrant. Now, understand something. When an alien enters the United States and becomes a resident alien, they can bring their wives and their children or their husbands and their children to the United States, and that's it, minor children. When they become citizens, the doors open up where they could bring in their parents, and they could also bring in their brothers and sisters, even if they are adults and married. So once they bring in their brothers and sisters, if their brothers and sisters are married, their spouses also can come to America. And if they have children, then their minor children can come in with the parents. Okay, we, We're going to keep the nuclear family together. So think about that. Imagine a family that has lots and lots of kids. Not unusual in the third world. So you have the typical family with, let's say, four, five, six children. So if an alien becomes a citizen, not only do they bring along their wives and their own children, they can now bring in their mothers and their fathers, which is why we've given the name to aliens born in the United States as U.S. citizens, because they can do this as soon as they turn 21. They can petition for their mothers and fathers. They get the term anchor baby from that. And there's a lot of discussion about changing the 14th Amendment 
so that an alien born illegally in the United States would no longer be a U.S. citizen. Another subject for another day. But again, everything is interconnected. So understand how all these pieces fit together. So once we naturalize an alien, he or she becomes a U.S. citizen, immediately has the authority as an American to petition for their mothers and fathers and all of their siblings and all of their siblings' families. So if somebody gets to be a citizen and they have six brothers and sisters and each of them is married, we're now talking about 12 people, and each of those families have, let's say, six children, where are we now? 60 people? 70? God knows. All because their brother, who's middle-aged, got married, and they're middle-aged, but everyone gets to come to America under family reunification. They can take whatever jobs they want. They can compete with American workers. They can send their money home. It's catastrophic. It makes no sense in this day and age. And, you know, we're going to hear about how 100 years ago, aliens came here and they did the hard work. Yes, and more and more of those hard physical jobs are going away between artificial intelligence and automation, fewer and fewer farm workers need to be in the field. And we have temporary work visas, by the way. So it's not as though if you get, if, if we don't bring them in on green cards, there's no other way to come here. And, and we're going to get to how important that concept is momentarily. But this is about putting people on a pathway to residency and citizenship simply because their brother or sister that maybe they don't even see more than once every 10 years suddenly came to the United States, became an American, and now the whole family gets to come to America. It's crazy. And what I said yesterday on I-24 News, I've come up with a way of getting people to conceptualize this whole thing. If you have medical insurance, it's generally accepted that your spouse and your minor children are on your medical insurance policy, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, whatever you have, whatever your health insurer is, generally your nuclear family, your minor children and your spouse, and now children up to age 27, in fact, which I happen to agree with because some kids are in school trying to get advanced degrees. Um, jobs are more difficult. Things are getting better, but it's still not paradise. Wages, earnings uh, still aren't where they need to be. They're getting better. We've got a long way to go. But you may not be in a situation where you can get health insurance. So it makes sense that the children are on their parents' medical insurance policy. But could you imagine calling up Blue Cross and saying, by the way, I happen to have five brothers and one sister, and they're all married, and they have children can you put them on my medical insurance plan? They would laugh at you. They would laugh at you because that's a ridiculous notion. The only people who get covered by a health insurance plan is the nuclear family. So here's my proposal. You would not be able to give a green card to petition the government to permit a relative to enter the United States as a lawful immigrant if you could not put them on your medical insurance plan. Because the medical insurers understand what a family is. We, we don't bring in our brothers and sisters and their children and put them on your Blue Cross plan, not, not for what you're paying. If you did that, you'd probably have to pay a million dollars a year in premiums. Why then are we, in this so-called notion of family reunification, approving green cards for the extended families of United States citizens? And the answer is, it no longer makes sense. We don't have a shortage of workers. Folks, we have a shortage of jobs. A hundred years ago, we needed the workers. Not now. Not when you have millions of Americans who are unemployed or underemployed. Even with the amazing unemployment rate, there are still millions of people who have fallen out of the system. They've given up looking for work. They don't work and so forth. So we're still talking about a large population of workers who need a job or don't have a job. So there's no need to flood America with all sorts of people to do manual physical labor. If you look at the way they used to manufacture cars, think of the old movies we've seen, the grainy 
you know, deteriorating films of the, of the uh, Model T Ford rolling off the production line, these big burly guys in grease-spattered coveralls schlepping the car from one workstation to the other. It's all automated. Robots do the great majority of automotive assembly. Many other industries have become automated. When you think of the draftsmen that used to work at, for the various uh, engineering companies, that's been replaced by computer-aided design. The drafts people are gone. The mechanic, you know, I studied mechanical drawing back in college because I was an engineering major originally. My kids never took mechanical drawing. They studied computer-aided design. There was no more T-square and triangles and, dra and drawing boards. Gone. It's a lost art. Back when I was in college, we used slide rules. They're gone. You know, it's a different era. Technology has, you know, taken off like a, literally like a rocket. Uh, we're now getting um, 3D printing, which was just a fantasy a few years ago. So more and more jobs are going away, and we're going towards more high-tech jobs and fewer low-tech jobs, which gets us to the idea about the merit-based system. So here's something to consider. I certainly believe that aliens who have high levels of skills that we need, and that's the critical operative word, that we need, should be enticed to coming to America so they could contribute their skills to our country. I'm in total agreement with that idea. What I'm disturbed about is all too frequently we bring in high-tech workers, not because there's a shortage, but because the only thing exceptional about those foreign workers is that they are willing to work for exceptionally low wages. Therein lies my problem with this system. From what I understand, President Trump's plan would not cut the number of immigrants entering the United States with green cards, only shift from family-oriented to job-oriented. That might not be good news for America's high-tech workers and America's students who are studying to take the jobs in the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math. Think back not long ago when Walt Disney, the great Disney company, fired hundreds of American computer programmers and displaced them with supposedly superior workers from India, baloney. In fact, the American workers were ordered to train their foreign replacements who didn't have the ability if the Americans wanted their severance package. And a year or two later, after everybody jumped up and down and screamed about Disney's um, outrageous misconduct, they said, well, you know, we made a mistake. We should never have made those American workers train their replacements. We should have been sports about it and just given them their severance packages as we threw them out the door. These were hardworking, loyal, experienced workers who, in some cases, had worked for decades for Disney. I was on a radio show a couple of years ago in Washington. The fair put up Radio Row. The guy that spoke before me had worked for Disney, and he told about how he and all of his colleagues had been given glowing evaluations. You can't be better. On a scale of 1 to 10, you're a 10. There isn't anything we would change. Thank you because we've made more money because of your hard work than we've ever earned. You guys are fabulous. And a couple of weeks later, they get called into the conference room at the end of the day, and everyone was convinced they were about to get a bonus, and they were all excited, and they were told they were fired. Of course, that wasn't the way it was presented. They said, we're shifting things around. You'll have new opportunities. Sure. Out of hundreds of people, I believe this gentleman said three, three, the number three, just one, two, three, three people were kept by Disney. Everyone else was shown the door. They were forced to train their replacements from India. The same game played out at the power companies in California, at Hewlett Packard. At Microsoft, Dan Rather did a story a few years ago, Thanks for Nothing, uh, I believe was the title, where they interviewed people who had master's degrees in programming, had worked for companies for decades, and were unceremoniously fired and replaced by people from India. Absolutely remarkable. And Congress pushed hard for this. 
And Bob Goodlatte, who had been the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, he's a Republican. I had a meeting with Goodlatte, lasted about 30 minutes, told me how he knew so much about immigration. Well, yes, of course he did. He was an immigration lawyer, and according to newspaper accounts, his area of specialty was the H-1B visa, bringing in the high-tech workers. And when I said to him at the time of the meeting, this was around 2014, I, I said, you know, um, Americans do this work, and they do it well. My first wife died of cancer over three decades ago. She was a brilliant programmer. She had an MBA in computer science, member of the National Math Honor Society. Those people that worked for her all had similar levels of education, skill sets, and proficiency and experience. Are they chopped liver? And he told me how his son was an executive in the computer industry, and he would love to see Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of brilliant Indian programmers come to America. I said, and what are those Americans, chopped liver? And that was when the meeting ended. So if you're curious, go online after my program, look up Bobby Goodlatte, G-O-O-D-L-A-T-T-E. You can look up Robert Goodlatte, former chairman. Look at his background, his proficiency in bringing in foreign workers. And look at his son who got his start with Zuckerberg at Facebook. Zuckerberg created a program several years ago called the Hackathon because Zuckerberg recognized that writing computer code can open doors for people. It can be life-altering. And Goodlatte says, I'm sorry, um, Zuckerberg, hard to keep track without a scorecard. Zuckerberg said, wow, if I could teach kids how to write code, I could open their doors for them. And he did. And he personally mentored young people in computer programming. How wonderful. Oh, by the way, one of the prerequisites for Goodlap to be, uh, for, I did it again, for Zuckerberg to be part of Zuckerberg's hackathon, as he called it, you had to be, quote unquote, an undocumented immigrant, an illegal alien. Why wouldn't you go into America's poverty stricken neighborhoods? where kids have bullets whizzing by their windows at night, where they live in houses that are rat-infested and they have no heat in the wintertime. They get involved with crime when they have no option for getting out of the grinding poverty that they endure every single day. So how about teaching those kids how to live successful lives? No, no, no. He wanted illegal aliens. We're going to change the culture and the dynamics of America by screwing over Americans and bringing in foreign brilliant workers. So when I hear this business, we're going to bring in the brilliant students. And once we've educated them, why make them leave? We heard that garbage from Mitt Romney, and we all know what kind of a piece of work Romney is. Why, we, why should we let these people go home now that we've trained them? Let's staple green cards onto their diplomas so that they don't go halfway across the world when they graduate. Let me tell you, the solution to not having kids who get degrees in the STEM field keep them from going halfway across the world, put American children in those classrooms. Then the most they'll do is go halfway across town. Why in the world are we so driven to educate foreign students and ignore the plight of Americans? American children are America's future. Any politician who doesn't care about American children, does not care about America's future. It's that simple. And I get the usual pushback from the globalist jackasses. Well, would you have kept Albert Einstein from coming to America? I mean, seriously, is that really a question? Of course not. But Albert Einstein was a singular, unique person. Yes, the space program was built by members of the, the, the Nazi regime task force, you know, from Penamunda, uh, Werner von Braun and the others. And I have real problems with von Braun. As I grew up and read more about him, the less I liked him. I planned to be an aerospace engineer. But in many ways, von Braun was a war criminal. And so were the people that we brought over here from Germany, but they served the purpose for the United States military because they had perfected the V-2 rocket, which was the basis for the Redstone. You know, you're hearing this week about how this is the 50th anniversary this year 
of Americans landing on the moon. Um, I had the privilege of meeting several astronauts who've been to the moon. Jim Lovell, Dave Scott, Jim McDivitt. I have a photo. I'm looking at it right now on my wall with Gene Kranz, flight director. I was in Washington, flight director, let me finish that sentence, for projects Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and the space shuttle. He brought the Apollo 13 crew home alive, along with Gene Lundy, another one of the flight directors at NASA. I had the distinct privilege of meeting Jack Fisher when I was in Washington to give a speech a couple of weeks ago. Um, Jack was a member of, of NASA. He's back at the Air Force now, and he flew to the space station a couple of years ago and did two spacewalks extravehicular activities, as they call them. These are Americans. And yes, the Germans got us to the moon, of course, along with tens of thousands of Americans. So we had a few Germans who had this very definite, specific skill set, and we needed them. We brought them here, and initially, um, they were being kept under tight watch. You know, they, we, we wanted to make sure they wouldn't betray us. Over time, they, they became part of the tapestry of America, which is the story of immigrants. And we could have the arguments about whether we should have brought people here who used slave labor at Panamunda to build the V2s that were weapons of terror used to destroy cities in, in England. But the government made a decision. And yes, immigrants came to America and helped our space program. And there are immigrants to this very day who come here from all over the world and help us with medicine, with computer technology, with aerodynamics, with a whole bunch of disciplines. But we're talking about a very small percent, not hundreds of thousands. When you speak about exceptional people, by definition, you're speaking about a small number. Don't show me a half million people and say they're all exceptional. Funk. If we're really talking about exceptional, we're talking about a small percentage of people who have extraordinary skills and abilities, and absolutely I want them to come to America. Absolutely I'd like them to have green cards and become United States citizens and become part of this great nation. But I want to make sure, and I'm not sure that the mechanism is in place, because we don't have the ability, the, the level of fraud running through the immigration system is, is unbearable. It also undermines national security. Immigration fraud was the key method of entry and embedding for the terrorists. It's the way that aliens game the system, okay? And in fact, if you look at the false claims to asylum and so forth on the Mexican border, and now the, the bringing in of children that really aren't the children of the aliens who come with them, these are all examples of fraud. And you need agents in order to weed out the fraud because it threatens national security, our well-being, and a host of issues. We need the agents that we don't have. Big issue, folks, very big issue. So understand that if we're really and truly talking about bringing in extraordinarily talented foreign workers, I want them here. Absolutely, I want them here to join us to become part of the tapestry of America, but not use this as an opportunity to displace Americans. See, Americans need to be at the heart of every decision the government of the United States makes. But that's not the way it now is. Americans are of no consequence to either party. When Donald Trump came to the White House, he said, we're going to put Americans first. And I think that that's wonderful, but I got to tell you, and I doubt that the president is listening, but if you are, don't allow a merit-based immigration system to become an excuse to unemploy and displace more high-tech American workers, because that would be outrageous. That would be the betrayal that we thought you came to the White House to stop, because that's what both parties have been doing for far too long. And in conjunction with that, I want to read something to you. And this is something that Alan Greenspan had said when he testified to Chuck Schumer back on April 30th, 2009, just over 10 years ago. The hearing was about comprehensive immigration reform, and Greenspan talked about how great it is to bring in foreign, undocumented workers, unauthorized, as he called them. And he said, you know, the American people don't like it, but they're a flexible labor source, and they only minimally suppress the wages of America's working poor. 
Well, when you suppress by any amount America's working poor, they wind up homeless. And we all know that we've never seen more homelessness in major cities from San Francisco to New York than we see today. Housing prices have gone through the roof in part because we have flooded America with more people who need housing. So as the demand for housing goes up, the price of housing goes up. That's good for the banks. It's good for the real estate people. It's a pretty crappy deal for the American kid that's getting out of college and needs an apartment or ultimately wants to buy a house. We're making it increasingly difficult for American families to realize the American dream of that house with a two-car garage. In fact, so many people today don't even own cars. They lease them. They rent them. Cars are out of sight. Housing is out of sight. This isn't the way that a country looks out for its own people. We are slowly turning America into a third-world country, which is music to the Democrats' ears, because as people struggle financially, they are forced to vote for the party that offers to subsidize their suffering. When you hear people saying that a $15, a minim, a $15 an hour minimum wage would help address wage inequality, that's bull. 30000 a year is what it amounts to. Lots of luck trying to live on $30,000 a year, especially in places like New York City. You can't support a dog on $30,000 a year in New York City. We are slowly destroying the purchasing power of most American families. We just haven't realized how tight things are, how few people have savings accounts. They live paycheck to paycheck, scared to death that if they get sick or get laid off or fired, that they're screwed. America never hung that dangerously at the brink. And here we find ourselves. So if we're going to bring in high-tech workers, it must not be at the expense of Americans. We'd be much better off educating American children, even if we have to subsidize their education as long as they go into fields that we need, engineering, programming, science, you know, medical uh, industry, uh, become doctors and so forth. This is what we need for America's future. Corporations are greedy. Immigration lawyers are among the most greedy. They're happy to have all those clients pouring across the border, whether legally or illegally, because they just want them to come into their office so they can charge them billable hours. That's what they live for, billable hours. But let me read to you what Alan Greenspan had to say about H-1B visas. You could say the same thing about giving out green cards to the highly skilled. What you're about to hear is not my words. Don't get angry with me. I'm just a messenger. This is what Alan Greenspan had to say about why we should do what Bill Gates said and flood America with what Bill Gates called the world's best and brightest. By the way, uh, I come from Brooklyn, and where I come from, we already have a name for the world's best and brightest, folks. We call them Americans. Now, here's what Alan Greenspan had to say. This is why we should open up the quotas for the H-1B and I suspect he would agree with giving green cards to the high-tech workers also. First, skilled workers and their families form new households. They will, of necessity, move into vacant housing units. Boy, isn't that a Norman Rockwell painting, the vacant housing unit? These were homes lost to foreclosure, but that's Alan Greenspan. You've got to love the guy. Meanwhile, he has a mansion in the Hamptons, from what I understand. But let me go back and start again. First, skilled workers and their families form new households. They will, of necessity, move into vacant housing units, the current glut of which is the pricing prices of American homes. And, of course, house price declines are a major factor in mortgage foreclosures and the plunge in value of the vast quantity of U.S. mortgage-backed securities that has contributed substantially to the disabling of our banking system. Let me interject. What Greenspan really isn't telling you is that it was his subprime mortgages that did that, okay? He did it, and he's trying to push it off on someone else. What a, what a ganeth, as they would say in Yiddish, you know? And then he gets to this other one. The second bonus. Now, if you take blood pressure pills 
I'll give you a second. Take it right now because you're going to need it. Now, here we go. The second bonus, that is to say of bringing in all those high-tech workers, would address the increasing concentration of income in this country. That's a problem. I guess someone's making too much money, according to Mr. Greenspan. So he says the second bonus would address this increasing concentration of income in this country. Greatly expanding our quotas for the highly skilled would lower the wage premiums of the skilled over the lesser skilled. Skill shortages in America exist because we are shielding our skilled labor force from world competition. Quotas have been substituted for the wage pricing mechanism, and in the process, we have created a privileged elite whose incomes are being supported at non-competitively high levels by immigration quotas on skilled professionals. Eliminating such restrictions would reduce at least some of our income inequality. Folks, when have you ever heard middle-class high-tech workers being referred to as the privileged elite? If this doesn't roast you, check for a flatline EEG. You have to be brain dead. The solution to wage inequality to Mr. Greenspan is to destroy the middle class so then the poor won't have anyone to be envious of because we'll all be poor. What Greenspan is laying out is a plan for communism, which certainly is now where the Democratic Party is. Greenspan was a man ahead of his time. I was so furious when I heard Greenspan deliver those remarks at the hearing. I watched it live on my computer. It was streaming live. I was on a radio show the next day. The young lady whose show I was on said, Mike, what did you think about Greenspan when you listened to make those statements? I told her that I knew that I was witnessing a first, and she said, you know, knowing you, I'm afraid to ask what kind of a first was it. And I said, well, it was the first time I'd ever seen anyone testify before the Senate while suffering from rigor mortis. Let that sink in. How in the world is this reasonable? And that's what concerns me, that the power elite in America, where the real concentration of money lies, not the middle class, but the elitists, the Greenspans, the Zuckerbergs, the Gateses of the world, the immigration gazillionaires, the lawyers, they just want more money. You know, the average American is happy to have a roof over his or her house, a refrigerator with food, a car in the driveway, and hopefully with a tank of gas and maybe a nice couple of suits hanging in the closet. These individuals need mansions scattered all over the world. They need yachts, and they need money um, that would make King Midas envious. And they're willing to do it at our expense and at the expense of America's national security and freedom. And that's dangerous. So if you want to talk about a merit-based immigration system, I agree with you. But first and foremost, cut the numbers. And second of all, don't tell me about the brilliant people from overseas when we have so many geniuses in America, but none of them apparently in public office. Because those politicians, if they're smart, they're as shrewd as Willie Sutton. They know where the money is. That's all they seem to know. They also don't seem to give a damn about how they're hurting their fellow countrymen or our children, and they need to be reined in. So, again, merit-based makes sense, but only if you cut the numbers and make certain that we don't bring in people who displace Americans or that Americans can't be trained to do those jobs so that we build up our middle class and we give opportunities to American children, particularly American kids who live in poverty. Why is that never part of the conversation? It needs to be. And we, the people, need to make this the pivotal issue of the conversation. It won't happen sitting at home. Get out there, make the phone calls, attend the town hall meetings, and hold those bums accountable because they are engaged in the theft of the future of our children and our grandchildren, and only we, the people, can stop the madness. Now, I want to get to my article that I wrote about China. <clears throat> um, 
the article that I wrote for frontpagemag.com, and I hope everybody will go to Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com. It's sponsored by David Horowitz Freedom Center. I've been writing for them for years, very proud of my relationship with, with the Freedom Center and with Front Page Mag. The title at frontpagemag.com, I'll put in another plug. I've also been discussing this, by the way, at another website that I've started working with, Dennis Michael Lynch, who's done the documentaries. I appear in a few of his documentaries. They come to America or coming to America. I forget the exact wording. DML, as in Dennis Michael Lynch, dmlnews.com. I've been writing for him and doing podcasts at dml.com, so please check that out. But this is at Front Page Mag, the China trade war, national security on the line. And then in the subtitle, I wrote, Trump's response demonstrates uncommon leadership. The problem that we now have is that um, China is an adversary of the United States. Let's be crystal clear. Why George Herbert Walker Bush gave the most favored trade status boggles my mind. This is a communist country. This is not a democracy. You know, after the Berlin Wall came down, all these idiots were doing the dance. Oh, wow, the, the communism is dead. We killed the evil. Really? You have Cuba sitting off our coast, 90 miles from Florida, communist regime. Look at what happened in Venezuela. Look at what happened in China. China is using technology, facial recognition technology, to clamp down on their own citizens and Google helping them. Think about that. Google rejected the notion of helping our military, but they're willing to help China censor their own citizens in China. And we give them most favored trade status. We educate their engineers and their programmers. They get optional practical training. They get jobs under that in the United States where they can put the training they got to good use. And how do they put it to use? Well, they work for military contractors, and then they commit espionage against America. Espionage by China against America has become so commonplace that the members of the intelligence community have sarcastically come to to call Chinese espionage Chinese takeout, little gallows humor. But there's nothing funny. They hack our computers every second of every minute, of every hour, of every uh, day, of every week, of every year. Those computers are being hacked on all levels. So here's something interesting. On May 9th, this year, 2019, the Department of Justice issued a press release. Here's the press release. This is their title. Member of sophisticated China-based hacking group indicted for series of computer intrusions, including 2015 data breach of health insurer Anthem Incorporated, affecting over 78 million people, 78 million American computers were hacked by this Chinese group. Uh, Folks, do you wonder why Donald Trump is doing what he's doing with China, saying enough is enough is enough? This should have been done years ago. This should have been done years ago. It started with Nixon and Kissinger opening up China, exacerbated by Uh, what was done by George Herbert Walker Bush when he gave the most favored trade status. Bill Clinton ran on the promise he would end most favored trade. In fact, if anything, they ought to be looking into the wheelings and dealings between Hillary and Bill where China is concerned and technology transfers were concerned. By the way, we admit lots of people from China with green cards. I hope that we're scrutinizing those applications properly because China has a principle about where espionage is concerned. They call it a thousand grains of sand. The idea is each person brings back just one nugget of information, whether they're foreign students, whether they come as tourists. Chinese intel, this is a totalitarian country, tasks their people and tells them, you will do this for us. And they do. And if you look at Chinese fighter planes, they look remarkably like American fighter planes. China built artificial island in the South China Sea and then warned us with military action if we get too close, our most favored trade partner. I'm sure England and Israel and and, and Germany and France and Canada do the same things to us, right? Threaten us with military action. They transfer technology to North Korea, then North Korea threatens us with the missiles, and they're getting the technology from Russia and Iran 
and of course our good friends China, most favored trade partner. At what point is enough enough? And finally, and I, I want you to read the article and forward this to as many people as you can. I call this my bucket brigade of truth. We've got to get the word out there. China is responsible, according to DEA, for the movement of the greatest amount of fentanyl and other such dangerous drugs into the United States. They send it through the postal system. They're flooding it across our borders. They are flooding America with fentanyl and other dangerous drugs, and they always promise that they will stop, and then they don't. And then they make more promises, and then they don't. And finally, we have a president with the cojones, with the, with the chutzpah to stand up to China, and all Wall Street can worry about is, oh, how is this going to affect inflation? How is this going to affect the bottom line? America's survival is at stake. This isn't a game. China is on the move. They are building their nuclear fleet. Who do you think they see as their adversary? I'll give you a hint. Two letters, U.S., us, the United States. That's who they see as their adversary. Make no mistake about it. They are operating throughout Latin America, as is Hezbollah and other clients of Iran, which brings me to the final issue that I want you to give thought to. What we're hearing about Iran and concerns about war with Iran is that the Iranian government um, is um, in positions of authority and control throughout Latin America, and therefore the United States is concerned about the harm that this does to the Middle East. What nobody seems to be talking about is how Hezbollah and the Quds forces, the Red Guard, the elite of Iran, is operating in the United States. We heard about the, the, the uh, oil tankers in the Arabian Sea that were bombed. They didn't sink. They, they had bombs attached. They believed by, Navy, by uh, Iranian frogmen, uh, you know, sc scuba divers who got to the bottom of the ship placed bombs and detonated them and punched holes in the tankers. The tankers didn't sink. But I have a theory. I might be wrong, and I'm not getting this from anyone, and I really hate speculating. But I know that a long time ago I read how one of the things that Iran would want to do if we ever went to war with them is to sink ships near the Straits of Hormuz to cut off the, the ships coming out of the Middle East with petroleum to paralyze the world. My concern is that this was a test to see how easily they could plant bombs on the hull of a ship without detection. And apparently they did it. And now it is believed that they have also, the Iranians, have also used drones to destroy an oil pipeline. So this could have been not quite a dry run. Use a small amount of explosive, when they could have used a bigger one, not to sink the ship, but to see if their tactic of putting that bomb on the ship and then setting it off works. My concern is the next time they do it, it may well be a tanker who's in the middle of the straits, and you wind up where the ships can't get through that area as a choking move. Could be wrong. I'm not a military guy. This is outside my area of usual expertise, but things don't happen accidentally. Now, I, I want to read something to you, and I've read it before, but it's really important to read because nobody is talking about the activities of Iran in the Western Hemisphere. First of all, you need to know that for at least the last 10 years, Iran has been sending their Quds forces, their shock troops, into Caracas, Venezuela. And look at what Venezuela is like now. It was once the wealthiest country in Latin America. It is now the poorest country in Latin America. Colombia is being overwhelmed by refugees running literally for their lives out of Venezuela. Even the New York Times said that no country has ever fallen on such economic hardship without a full-scale war. It's unprecedented. And Iran's fingerprints and Cuba's fingerprints, perhaps Russia's fingerprints, can be found in Venezuela. On April 17, 2018, a year ago, the House... Um, forgive me here, I'm trying to get this straight. The House Subcommittee on Homeland Security um, conducted a hearing, 
and the hearing was on the topic of state sponsors of terrorism and examination of Iran's global terrorism network. And one of the people who testified was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Emmanuel Odolengue of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. And this is what he said at that hearing. And none of the other witnesses refuted him. Sometimes when you're at a hearing, and I've done a whole bunch of hearings, one of the other witnesses will say, oh, Mr. Cutler's getting it wrong. Well, nobody disagreed with Dr. Otto Lenge when he made the following statement. In recent years, Hezbollah's Latin American networks have also increasingly cooperated with violent drug cartels and criminal syndicates, often with the assistance of local corrupt political elites. Cooperation includes laundering of drug money, arranging multi-ton shipments of cocaine into the United States and Europe, and directly distributing and selling illicit substances to distant markets. Proceeds from these activities finance Hezbollah's arms procurement, its terror activities overseas, its hold on Lebanon's political system, and its efforts both in Lebanon and overseas to keep Shia's communities loyal to its cause and complicit in its endeavors. Now, this next paragraph is the stuff of my nightmares. Welcome to my world of sleeplessness. This toxic crime terror nexus, uh, again, referring back to Hezbollah operating with the, with the smugglers of drugs and people, right? This crime terror nexus is fueling both the rising threat of global jihadism and the collapse of law and order across Latin America. Again, think about Venezuela. Remember that it was Iran that was sending, has been sending their shock troops into Caracas for the last decade, okay? So let me read this again. This toxic crime terror nexus is fueling both the rising threat of global jihadism and the collapse of law and order across Latin America that is helping to drive drugs and people northward into the United States. It is sustaining Hezbollah's growing financial needs. It is helping Iran and Hezbollah consolidate a local constituency in multiple countries across Latin America. It is thus facilitating their efforts to build safe havens for terrorists and a continent-wide terror infrastructure that they could use to strike U.S. targets. How crystal clear is that? How disconcerting is that? So if you look at that, and, and you read my other article that I wrote, this was published May 7th at Front Page Magazine. Again, please, I urge you, go to frontpagemag.com or go to my website, michaelcutler.net. But the article itself appeared on May 7th, frontpagemag.com, Jihad at the Border, How the Border Crisis Facilitates the Entry of Terrorists. And I think if you're familiar with my work or you pay attention to what I've been doing, I don't make statements without being able to back them up. I, I know I'm doing a little speculation talking about people putting bombs on the holds of, of uh, tanker ships. Uh, I don't normally speculate, but it's just something that I'm sharing with you because, you know, my concern is there. And it's, again, not just total wild speculation. But when I talk about terrorists entering the United States and you look at how many people have been arrested in the United States who were identified by the FBI and Homeland Security as sleeper agents from Iran over the past couple of years. In fact, when Mr. Obama was running for re-election, if you remember the incident back in 2012, a couple of people linked to Iran were arrested in the United States. They were planning to bomb the Saudi and possibly Israeli embassies in Washington and kill the Saudi ambassador. So when you connect all these dots and you look at what's happening on the U.S.-Mexican border, not only is it a crisis, it's a humanitarian crisis, but there are issues here that have a clear present and immediate threat potentially to U.S. national security. That's how dangerous the situation is. And yet you have delusional politicians, principally now the Democrats, saying there's nothing to see here, folks. There's no crisis. There's nothing wrong. It's a made-up emergency. Anybody who doesn't see this for what it is is a problem. The first step in problem solving is to acknowledge the problem and agree that it's got to be solved. Too many of these Democrats today are not even willing to acknowledge that we have a problem. And the biggest problem we have is that they are in positions of authority within our government. 
we need to be involved. I always like to make the point, democracy is not the spectator sport. Please get involved. Please forward my materials to as many friends as you can. And I'll look forward to seeing you again next week at the same time right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. Enjoy your weekend.